Hello, everyone. Welcome to Hail Reaper. My name is Philip, and this is your Lightbringer tell-all interview with Red Rising author Pierce Brown. We recently got together with Pierce in Hollywood and had a fantastic time. This conversation gave us an even deeper appreciation for Lightbringer, and after listening, I know you'll feel the same. Next week, we'll have another new episode with Pierce, a very fun Lightbringer Q&A. We want to thank Pierce for his time and for being so fun and gracious. We want to thank Third Wheel Podcast Studios for hosting us and shout out to our guy Jeff for producing this session. Lastly, shout out to Ice from American Gladiators, who we briefly saw at Third Wheel Studio. You have always been our favorite gladiator. Lightbringer spoilers ahead. Thanks for listening and enjoy the episode. Once again, Pierce, thanks for joining us. Uh, man, I, Lightbringer just did a number on me, dude. Like, I've been thinking about this book so much more. It's, it's stuck with me more than your other books have. Um, and I think there's a lot of reasons why. But the one that I, on my reread, which I finished yesterday, I, you know, I, I closed the book and I was like, dang, I, I can't escape this connection that goes back all the way to the Red Rising. And I know in our... We did it uh, in May. We got together and we were calling it first trilogy, second trilogy. Mm -hmm. But after finishing Lightbringer, it really feels like six Mm -hmm. books now Mm -hmm. and a seventh coming out. And when the seventh comes out, it'll be seven books. Yeah. It'll feel like seven books. And I think we then have to stop calling it the first trilogy. It'll just be the series. It will be the the series. And at the end of Lightbringer, it felt like cemented that for me Mm because we were just, even you were like, I'm not going to call it second series for series. And and we were trying, all three of us were trying not to. It's tough. (laughs) And the reason I did that was that, you know, I, learned from so many people they wouldn't start a series until it was finished. So I thought, yeah. you know, I was doing the original trilogy not to, to freak people out when I decided to do a fourth, fifth, and sixth book and say it's, it's a separate trilogy. <laughs> yeah. You can still finish this trilogy and be happy. Yeah. And now I realize I've created a problem. <laughs> <laughs> so I interrupted no, you. No, you're good, dude. You're good. There is um, the one thing that I was kind of stuck on yesterday when finishing it is that the book ends with that scene where in Cassius's room, we're on the Archimedes again, and they're watching the hollows. Mm-hmm. But going back to the beginning of the book, chapter two, you've got Darrow, you know, telling Pax and his memoirs about that night, that same night. And so you really kind of close that loop. You have this opening of the book and the, and the end of the book with this moment of, you know, raiding House Minerva, and it just, it's so transportive. You caught that, huh? It's, it's so beautiful. <laughs> I, I'm curious though, was that something you were stuck on or is that something, what you were trying to communicate to the readers by kind of going back to that, those moments in the Institute? It's the connectivity between people's nostalgia. I think that those were moments, one, that the readers really rallied behind and mm-hmm. were kind of the ultimate expressions of the fun side of the Institute and the first mission that Severo, Cassius, and Darrow completed together. And... It's really when they became a pack and yeah. started. So Howlers didn't exist yet. Yeah. It was just them three. Mm-hmm. And I think often over the course of the series, they forget that and we forget that. That Cassius was kind of an original Howler. Weird to think. Weird to think, yeah. right? But also it was important to me to think that you know, it, was, it was on Darrow's mind at the beginning. And he's thinking finally about it. It was also on Severo's mind at the end. Mm-hmm. And Cassius had been watching it. Yeah, And it's that... That's that thing. Those are the things. I don't cry during sad stuff. I cry at that stuff. Mm, yeah. You know, and looking at that because I was thinking how poignant it is that they were 
even though they didn't share it and they have all these walls they built around each other, the their threads were first woven together in that moment. Mm-hmm. And the life threads. And both all of them recognize it and all of them look back fondly on it. And all of them looked at that as the halcyon time period at the Institute. Mm-hmm. And for me, that's a lot of friendships when you're telling a story to a, when you meet a high school friend or a friend you knew your kid and you say, do you remember when? Yeah. And their eyes light up because mm-hmm. <laughs> they remember that moment too. And they remember it in a slightly different way. And I think that that's a very special moment in friendship. And as I've gotten older, I've started having more of those moments. Yeah. So it's probably in the front of my mind. Yeah. Those are your friends and you're going back to that yeah. same. Yeah. And I feel like, I mean, you tell me, but I think that the only way that works is with Cassius being such an integral part of this book, kind mm-hmm. of being the heart of the book, as you said, in our Q&A. Mm-hmm. Um, and he kind of upholds that and makes it all kind of come back and coalesce into this brotherhood. And yeah. it's just such a sweet, special moment for like a lot of readers. I think for Cassius fans like myself, uh-huh. it was like, I was intoxicating, honestly. Like it was like, I was, I'm still riding a, a depression and a high <laughs> from, from the book. And I think that's kind of why I haven't been able to let it go. But it does, again, it also, because like I said, it makes it feel like we're in book one and book six at the same time. It's so special. I think one of the, thank you for saying that. But I think one of the things I was very conscious of when I was writing this expansion of the series was knowing that the further you get away from the initial magic of the series, the more you have the risk of doing a couple things, um, jumping the shark, mm-hmm. betraying the initial concept of the characters and making the initial part, the initial actions, the initial sacrifices and experiences feel for naught, feel like nothing, you know? Like when, and these are things I felt very acutely in, um, um, add-ons to some of my favorite series. Yeah. You know, Han Solo's death, for instance, hmm. felt to me that it diminished all of what came before, to me. And what I didn't want anything, what I didn't want to have happen was for the events in book five, four, five, six, to diminish what came before. And book six is was really my way, and those moments are really my way of just because it ends in tragedy with Cassius, does, how do you construct a story that even though it ends tragically, it doesn't diminish anything that came before. It actually mm-hmm. makes it better. It uh, makes it feel more real. It f- makes it feel more meaningful. And upon rereading, when you're rereading that scene, um, in book one, knowing what happens in book six, mm-hmm. I want the emotions to feel like yeah. nostalgia instead of like, <sighs> instead of the scene being ruined by knowing what comes. Instead, I want it to feel more meaningful. And so little bits like that in Lightbringer, and in fact, uh, one of the core conceits or one of the core principles in Lightbringer that I was trying to get across was that uh, how our lives are often very circular. And it's the, the moments we had when we were young and coming back to those moments and finding ourselves again, despite everything that's happened, despite all the new weight on you, mm-hmm. um, is a very crucial task. I think the book is so cyclical like that. You're like all these little loops kind of being, I guess, closed. Yeah. I, don't, I don't really, I think that's too strong of a word, but no, it does it, feel like it that is. at times. Yeah, or more like, um, th- how would I say it? Um, it's like a, the wheel being knit together. Yeah. Um, and it's with Darrow going out, uh, Darrow is closing loops wherever he goes. Mm-hmm. You know, his entire journey is that, even though he's going further and further from the, the place he wants to go. Mm-hmm. And that's also key to Dara because in the past he would just go there and damn all the consequences, <laughs> right? But every interaction, he ha- every interaction he has in this, he's closing a loop. 
you know, with, uh, with Quicksilver, with um, the Rim, with the Daughters of Ares, with Cassius. And then it really sets the stage for the seventh for there's very few loops left to close. Yeah. Um, very, or to tie off, knots to tie off or whatever you want to call it, threads to tie off. And instead it's now it's, most people have had most of the evolutions that they're going to have. And now it's just the results. Yeah. The climax. Just, yeah, putting it all together. Yeah. We were, we were talking about this on the way down, just like the, I guess the, the showdown that this is going to be the seventh book and like just our excitement for that. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to be so much fun. So one of the loops that really closed though, that I, I mean, it's, it's Cassius, right? Mm -hmm. You have a, you have an arc and it's, it's done. It's, I mean, unless there's something else that we don't know yet that you're going to put in, but Jeremy was telling us, uh, telling me, excuse me, when we were talking about Cassius and we on our podcast prior, we reacted to that chapter 84, mm -hmm. the hangar 17B. We were so proud of him. And that was mm -hmm. like our, he, I asked Jeremy, he said, I go, what was your reaction to the scene? And he caught me off guard. He said, pride. And I, 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 I started crying. See, that's that. what makes me cry too. Yeah. yeah. And I was just that's like, stuff. I was like, it was, cause it, and it, I was just quiet yeah. for a minute. I was just like, it's just, that's it. Like that was the perfect word. And it just, it, but it did, it caught me off guard and it caught my throat. It was like, oh my gosh, you're right. Like, that was what I was feeling, but he, he gave me the word for it. Um, he can't be ruined anymore. He can't be tinkered with anymore. It's like this, he's frozen as, as, as beauty. And like mm -hmm. for me, like, and that's, I, I said earlier, is this my favorite character now ever. Mm -hmm. And, and part of it is because he's gone, but it's also sad that he's gone mm -hmm. at the same time. I, you mentioned on a Sons of Aries discord Q and a, a couple months before Lightbringer came out. I, I didn't, this is the first time I heard that. And the mm -hmm. first time I heard that this question being asked and the response, your, the question was, have you ever cried at a character death? Ah. And you <laughs> said, no, but in this next one, I cried my eyes out. I guess to take you there and to talk about Hangar 17B mm -hmm. and just like, I guess how that all wraps up, because I want to spend some time on Cassius. Was it the moment itself or was it more of him being used as an instrument by Lysander, or was it more being in the Archimedes again? What, what moment really brought that emotion out in you? It was feeling all the moments coming, or all the moments before. So when he's talking with Darrow in the Archimedes. That's a great chapter. Yeah. Thank you. And that was starting to get hard. And I was like, you're, my, you're my brother. You're my oh, brother. Oh, God, it's all yeah. I wanted to hear, you know? Yeah. <sighs> <laughs> yeah. um, and then um, with light, then the moment uh, talking with Lysander because he's talking to his two brothers, mm -hmm. and uh, with, with, uh, Lysander breaks down, and um, Cassius offers him a way out, and um, those moments felt like they prepared dread to enter my heart, mm. and the way I write, I I can still change my mind just like my characters can. So in that first pass through when I'm getting up to Lysander after they've won, I still realized I could have Lysander not do it. Yeah. I could realize Cassius doesn't need to die. He doesn't have to. And I, but I'm, I'm not thinking of it as I don't have to make that choice. I'm like, Lysander can still make that yeah. choice. And then, but I, then I wrote it that he makes the choice and does it. And I, I just knew that it had to stay that way. Yeah. Um, but when I was writing his section, I, I was, I was even thinking Lysander can change his mind and the fact, Interesting. but I knew that it robbed everything. Um, I, mm. it wasn't, it wasn't coherent with where Lysander was at and what's really driving him. It wasn't coherent with the overall tone of the book that I wanted to leave people with. 
if Cassius didn't die. Yeah. And it just felt so right when I did it. And that's what, when he actually was holding him at the end and um, he wasn't sure if uh, Cassius could have put the blade in him or if he yeah. stopped short on purpose. Um, and then he's holding him as he's uh, on the ground. And I started crying when Lysander has the bag in his hands and he still had, and I realized he hadn't looked inside. Yeah. He still didn't know anything was in and there. And the one round so, left in the gun too. And so he, he, saved it, he saved it for himself. Yeah. It, just in case there's nothing inside or it's not what he needs, you know, cause this, that was only worth it if he got eyed me. Mm-hmm. And the, the, the fact that he took that risk with Cassie's life without even knowing kind of broke my heart. No Lysander, you choose. That's the point of it all. Yeah. That's what he says to yeah. him. And it's like that, that's what you're just saying. Yeah. It's like you choose. Yeah. And I love that you, hearing you say that because you're giving your character agency uh, over you, even in <laughs> yeah. a way, which is yeah. amazing. Yeah, and it's, it's weird. It's not like I'm possessed. It's, you get in that zone state when you're writing and some, when you're very lucky, something flows out of you. Mm-hmm. And it more is like your Sam Neill with a brush and finding a fossil, a dinosaur fossil that you're uncovering. And that, that kind of reveal, reveals itself towards for you. And so Lyser in, the, in that moment for me was in, even in his mind, he'd prepared himself to have the option to do either one, hmm. to not kill Cassius or you know, let him go. He would let him go, you know. Okay, that's, that's definitive. Yeah, he would let wow. him go, but Cassius wouldn't go. Wow, okay, I never thought that. As a reader, I'm sitting there thinking, there's no way this is permissible. Because Lysander is kind of like, I, I look at his, I guess some of his other teachers, you know, he's, that, he's that rational transaction mm-hmm. of war mm-hmm. kind of character, like Octavia or like mm-hmm. the Ashram, to me at least. And Here's the thing. Yeah. He would have let him go, but I think he knew that he would never go as soon as he knew about mm. the Eidme. Um, and Atlas, you know, one of my favorite parts of that scene is Atlas spilling the beans and knowing he's broken Lysander's heart by telling Cassius, you know, ask him what's in the bag. Yep, he, he spoils and it. So even with his death, he like ruins Lysander's life. Um, and that's all Atlas needs to do. He just knows everyone's trigger. You put the poison in yeah, and just, just walk away. Yeah, he just put the poison in and then he had his head spilled out. Yeah. You know? It's still and smiling apparently though. Yeah, it's still smiling, <laughs> still smiling. Uh, not a happy smile. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that Lysander likes to leave himself options and then per, but but kind of sets things up to be inevitable sometimes and then acts like he doesn't have a choice and that's part of this character flaw for me is he sets up a situation where there's only one solution and the solution is a bad is like a villainous one yeah um and he and it's always done for the sake of something greater, right? Mm-hmm. So Lysander, yeah. So that scene made me cry several times. I think the biggest one was when Cassi- Cassius has never looked more, or all, all the things I love about Cassius oh, or admire gosh. about him, respect. Mm-hmm. As, he's, <laughs> as he's pulling the trigger. He's all those things in this moment and yeah. none of the things I dislike, you know? That, that was one of my biggest reactions when we talked on our on podcast was, I, it, it, I, I think I said it, but it's like, it, it was blowing my mind. I put my hands on my head because we just read it. I was reacting yeah. to it in real time. Yeah. You know, we just reread it and then we record. And I'm like, I can't believe that his enemy, <laughs> I, can't, I can't. I might have to listen to that one. <laughs> I, can't, I can't believe his enemy is saying that about him. He's, 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 no, he's nothing I don't admire right now. Yeah. And he's, he's strong, he's brave, he's beautiful, he's all these things and more. Mm-hmm. And yet I'm pulling the trigger. Mm-hmm. Oh God, dude, you got us. You got us so good. <laughs> and I, there's some speculation about this scene. So you, you brought some clarity to one moment. Um, 
you know, that he would have let him leave. Like that's a, that to me, that's a big, that's, that's a his big perfect deal. world. He would yeah. let him leave. That's his perfect world. His perfect world. Uh, Cassius doesn't know what's in the bag and they think they completed the mission and like, he goes yeah. on his way. Um, yeah. So they complete the mission, they kill him and he goes on his way back to Darrow. Yeah. Um, that's a perfect mission because then Lysander can, can continue to have leverage to use with Cassius. Mm -hmm. um, but as soon as he knew that something was up with the bag, what Atlas brought back, he, you know. It's his, well, he, it's his duty. Like uh, he, he swore an oath to protect the Lord. I, I put it this way. It's like, how can he, Cassius, how, how can his honor remain if he swore an oath to protect low colors? And that's his, that's his whole life at this point. But if he lets a, a weapon like that exist in the hands of a, a now tyrant, that's, that's kind of ruining everything. That exactly. It violates his oath completely. Oh, exactly, right. So he can't leave. He can't. He, There's so, a, he can't. <laughs> yeah, but people think he can. And in a way, like, they think, I think that also violates Darrow, too, because if he goes back to Darrow, let's say, he, what's, you know, the hypothetical of that, he goes back to Darrow, he says, guess what? Atlas is dead. Uh, guess what? There's a biological weapon, and I'm glad I made it back to you. That's like, that's for you, that's about a chapter. What, and that's, that's, what in people's heads makes them think Cassius would ever do that? Like Cassius is the guy that goes and challenges Titus, you know. Mm -hmm. in, in, yeah, he's he, pissed on, he doesn't even, yeah. He's the guy that stands and faces uh, 200 onrushing obsidian, just like, well, guess I'm dying here. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, Darrow, you go, but I'm staying here. I, I think that's some of the beauty of the scene for me is this is not an insult to you by any means, this is a compliment, is that the scene wrote itself. Mm -hmm. Hmm. You've done such an incredible job of filling these characters out, of, of building their arcs, that there is no question. The work was done before. Yeah, as yeah. to how Cassius would have acted in this scene. Mm -hmm. And that, you know, I'm not much of a crier. <laughs> that's, that's Philip's job. <laughs> I'm so emotional, dude. <laughs> and I was still processing Cassius's death as well. And that's when Philip asked me, you know, what, how I felt about it, what I felt about Cassius. Mm -hmm. And it took me a second. There's a, there's a pause in that episode before I answer. And it, because I think you respected the characters and, and how they would act in those moments, mm -hmm. it, that all I could walk away with was pride. It, Cassius lived up to the dream of Eo in that he represents honor. And he did what he had to do. And it's incredible. <sighs> Yeah, I love that. I, 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 Thank I think you for saying And I think for me, he encapsulates that best by saying I'm Cassius Bologna. Yes, dude. We talk oh, about that so much. Philip got that. I, I, we, I was like, you, you have to understand this, everybody. Like, I'm like, I'm calling everyone that listens. That's his I'm most like, important thing he's ever said. Exactly. It's the perfect thing to say. Mm -hmm. Drop the owl. Yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> I, I, I get, get teary-eyed about dude, this stuff. Because it, I'm it, getting it there is right pride. Now. It is fun. And it's... Oh. it's it's crazy how these fictional characters can get in your head and it's, exist. But because they're, because, they're not, because they're not fictional, because there are truths that you. we recognize. Exactly. Thank you. And then other people see these truths and we anthropomorphize them, right? Mm. And so then we, we're, we're, what we're really doing is we're talking about a shared truth that is Cassius. Mm -hmm. And it's a journey of someone we could imagine. And it's things that we recognize hardships are coming, you know, we're, we're empathizing with someone who's not real because we can imagine be real. Like what else is uh, like a joint idea, right? America's a joint idea. Yeah. Everything's a joint idea. Absolutely. Jesus is a joint idea. It, yeah. It's something to aspire to. Mm -hmm. Like that to me is also what gets me about Cassius. Mm -hmm. It's like, I want to be like that when I grow up. I said that. Like, I want to be like that when I grow That's up. That's cool. But I, I've, you know, I have two young kids and I want to be like that for, for them, mm -hmm. you know, if I can. 
Um, I don't think I the can. Sh- the shield. You can be the shield, though. I can try. Yeah, <laughs> I'm gonna, and I'm going to try. Oh, all Cassius did was try. Yeah, and you know, he didn't always succeed. I mean, Cassius's main job is getting fucked up. You know, yeah. he loses to a lot of people, oh, yeah. but yeah. he's always trying. And he's like a reverse. He's like Darrow's a struggler too. All he does is try. He messes up all the time. Yeah. The concept is, the, the, you know, what's the what's the thing? Um, if life is anything, it is struggle. If uh, love is anything, it is truth. Hmm. Uh, what uh, Pax says to Virginia. And so I think, oh, so, and so I think yeah, that yeah. that that the, it's it's the struggle of be, being the shield, you know. Mm-hmm. And it, that's the truth of you. If you're truly a shield, and then the struggle to actually be one, right? And uh, you know, just because you're not Cassie, you're not seven feet tall with the, the greatest chin uh, <laughs> in, in the in the in the, uh, the solar system, doesn't mean that you can't also be as virtuous as him. Yeah, mm-hmm. you know. I love so you mentioned the chin. Hmm. I love Volga how she can't help oh, but stare at him. Some of my favorite <laughs> stuff I cracked up when I was writing that. She's like he's the most handsome dude I've ever seen, and she just can't like she's just like what? And, like Darrow needs him to leave so she can concentrate. <laughs> yes, <laughs> that's so good. He has to go get on the ship with uh, Lyria just to, so she can like focus. But she watches him go all the way up yeah, to the ship. Yeah, just so the good. entire way. Yeah, I know. And there's it's, it scenes like that. You're just like man. I wish I they had more screen time or like I think it was screen time uh, page time yeah. together. Well, I know you're, you're a cinematic writer. Yeah. So. I get it. Yeah, so, yeah. Let's let's go back a, just for a little bit more mm, into sure. Hangar 17B. There's a lot of speculation mm. about Lysander saying, like, finally all the strings are cut. Um, and then it kind of goes into this, like, dream-like state where he, there's a hand on the, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, a hand on the black door opens up. Mm-hmm. He's like a child. Can you go further on that mm-hmm. with us, like, what that means? <laughs> nope. Thank you. Okay, that's fine. Yep. Book seven. Book seven, okay. Book seven. Because there's a tons of speculation on on what that means. Um, That little mental intermission that Lysander has in in the midst of all this emotion and Mm -hmm. all the strings being cut. And, you know, I believe that there's breadcrumbs in the earlier books in Iron Gold uh, and Dark Age for that moment. So it's um, a recurring thing with Lysander, I believe. Like the piano, maybe, kind of like in that same vein? Certain aspects, yeah. Okay. Um, Well, you know... They don't know, but you know the first line of uh, Red God. <laughs> he, t- he told us the first line of Red God, everyone. I'm looking right in the camera. So, so you know where we're going. Yeah, I know. I'm yeah. excited for that. I, should we, not, we shouldn't talk about that too much more than the whole Luna thing, should no, we? No. Okay, we'll leave that, at, we'll leave that to people to speculate. Um, we wanted to... So Jeremy and I have been talking so much about this. I think what we found so interesting about the book outside of Hangar 70B. <laughs> that one chapter. Yeah. Um, no, I mean, the Cassius arc was, I think, our shared favorite moment of, like, moments of the book, Jeremy, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I think that's where we really connected and we bonded over. I mean... He was the best character by far. In the, it was his book, us. it felt like. And, and when you get to... I mean, I know you said it was Darrow's book, but actually, I think for a lot of readers, like the two of us, it felt like Cassius's mm-hmm. book. And Severo kind of has... It's Golden Sun kind of feels like his book mm-hmm. in a way. And then mm-hmm. you have other characters just kind of, they own that space. Morningstar's more like Ragnar's. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, of course, it's always Darrow's journey, but mm-hmm. it, it feels like it's theirs too. We... We, at the end of each episode, we gave our awards. So what we okay. do is we'd, we'd read the part and we'd instantly react, like I said, and we'd uh-huh. kind of talk through a few talking points. And we'd, we'd come with like, we'd form, we'd, we wouldn't share it with each other, but we'd formulate opinions and then share them in crosstalk. Okay. But at the end, we would go, well, who is your favorite character of this part? Who is your least favorite character of this part? You know, and then kind of these little award sections. So many times, Jeremy, we wanted to say the path of the veil was our favorite character in a way. 
because we felt it was being personified so much. It felt like a character. Mm -hmm. Jeremy posited the question to me on the way here, why? Why did it feel like a character? I think it's because the path is not a noun. It's a verb. It's a way of doing things. And Darrow and Cassius and several other characters are personifying the path to the veil. And so it feels... You ever seen Donnie Darko, the movie? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you know how Donnie can see um, this kind of ethereal worm that's ahead of people, uh, which is their intentions. It's, and mm -hmm. it goes out in front of their chests and it's like, he can see through time and it always leads to where they're going. And that, that's kind of like the path. It's like leading Darrow and Cassius. And so it's guiding them. And so I think it feels like a character because it's a way of doing things. It's almost like the force. Now the force can be used in a lot of different ways. The path is not the force. Right. Especially in the new movies. Especially in the new movie. I can force heal you, apparently. You can do a lot of things, of course. Uh, I personally, if I was a Sith, I'd just be doing force aneurysms. <laughs> I wouldn't have to right? do anything aneurysm, aneurysm. Yeah. <laughs> right? Or optical nerve, optical yeah. nerve. Yeah. Yes. Super easy. Yeah. Um, and so I think you'll have to tell me why, because that's my theory. My theory is because it's personified in the characters, and it's also your hope for them you know, to find a better way. And perhaps it also connects with you. I'm not sure. I think we're going to have to get there roundabout. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it, it's fascinating how much it, it weaves in and out. I, I think in the lead up to Lightbringer, you know, there's a lot of speculation about who the character Death would be right? mm. before, before we find out it was Cassius. I think, I don't know the major, the, the big one to me is, was Severo. Yeah, right? a lot of people thought Severo. And he's starting to kind of get more distant, and and so people kind of thought maybe you know it would be him. Mm -hmm. um, I had in my, a possibility Darrow, um, and the the way that he seemed to be going um, was kind of into a dead end. Uh, you know, he's he's such a flawed hero, and he's failing on the front of his home life too, uh, and it. It's funny because I, I kind of thought like there's no way out for this guy, you know. Maybe Pierce has to kill him. Maybe that's the only way to kind of put him in the pantheon and and mm -hmm. kind of save him mm -hmm. uh, in that degree. But you used religion. <laughs> I used faith. You used yeah. faith, and it's really fascinating, like the, the how you did that. And I think that faith it, it made so much sense in the moment to me. It's like this is the only way that I think Darrow could have been saved. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, you talk about these, we'll call them faith figures, right? And, and the salvific nature of them. And I think that's sort of why it came alive for me mm -hmm. is because the path saved Darrow in a sense to me. Cool. And restored him. It reached him. down his hand. It did. Mm -hmm. It pulled him out of the mud. Yeah. And it's like in every joke, I, I mean, we, we would just kind of throw it out there like, Oh, very here. Can I can I nominate path <laughs> the path right? <laughs> yeah. But it's like in every joke, there's always some truth. Yeah. Right? And it's like we did. We kept wanting to go back to that and going. And there's something about this that just it feels personified. It I feels real to and us. Wait, or it kind of does that for you too yeah. as well. But it does feel like it exists outside of her. It exists outside of Darrow. It has this. It has its own personality almost in a weird way to us. Well, I think it's what we were talking about with the characters. We were talking about them being personified truths, right? 
And perhaps the path is the same thing. It's a truth that the characters are discovering at the same time I'm discovering it when I'm writing it. And that truth is, in many ways, is, you know, it's well, it's no less real than the characters are. And so maybe that's what's really drawing you guys to it and mm -hmm. us to it um, is something that, well, how to say it? It's, it, it gives hope mm -hmm. in a situation where there is no hope and where the sum of many of the characters' decisions without the path reaching down its hand, even though it's their choice, mm -hmm. you know, it's their agency, but without that hope that if they operate a little differently, their lives can be different. And maybe not even different, but the important thing is that they are operating differently, right? And um, I don't know if you guys have ever hit rock bottom or close to rock bottom, but it's when you, when, when, when you, there's a switch that flips. And it's not, it doesn't have to be, you know, uh, Jesus or whatever your faith is. But um, once you find something to believe in, maybe it's even like a better version of you, or maybe it's um, like to be honorable or to be like Cassius, it's so much easier to find motivation and energy. And all of a sudden, the world feels like it has a purpose. And the horizon seems unlimited and things aren't happening to you. Life isn't something that's happening to you, right? It's instead something you're making or going through. Um, so I love that you guys mentioned, said, said that, uh, phrased it like that, that it was your favorite character, because I never would have thought of it like that. Hmm. And I find that really <laughs> compelling. Yeah. And your explanation of it, I think, beats the hell out of mine. I loved it, <laughs> calling it faith, you know, because yeah. with Darrow, I was at that point. And he was at that point where that was why the book had to go over, do have major rewrites, hmm. um, because the path wasn't in the first part. Oh, oh. wow. You know, I discovered it through having to, you know, eliminate hundreds and hundreds of pages um, coming out of COVID when I thought I'd have my book done. And I was feeling very insecure that I'd have my book done. I was feeling very, at a, very low myself. And the path really, you know, came to fruition when I was reading the uh, um, books on Taoism and Stoicism. And it's just a mix of the two okay. um, set in a red rising world and some of the life lessons I've had. And so it was more aspirational writing it, you know, to pull Dara up out of the muck. At the same time, I was finding my footing in the story. Yeah. They feel, I mean, they feel like, you know, proverb-like, obviously, mm -hmm. like this King Solomon. Is yeah. that, were you, what were you, you said you kind of, were you channeling anything else other than those two things? Were you going to, going to like a proverb or you're going to? No, mostly those two things. Um, yeah. But everything's a gumbo inside you, <laughs> right? You know, yeah. I've obviously read a lot of the proverbs and things like that, but I wasn't referencing them. Yeah. Um, my editor, Mike Braff, was uh, hugely in instrumental in this because he was a religion uh, major in, in, mm. in college. Oh, wow. Yeah, so okay. I've always got the history aspect down. Mm and uh, the myth aspect down, and he loves the religions. And so he was a great, great reference point for the Path of the Veil. And in fact, um, it was his notion that Darrow should have a guide during this time mm. to help himself find his way through. And Mike actually gave me a book on Taoism when I was going through a hard time. And that's how the path came to be. And so much of the credit belongs with Mike Braff on it. Thanks, Mike. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He's got some good things. He's got fuck, and he's got, <laughs> he's got that one. He's got both. Oh, yeah. And wow. He's, and he's all about the Obsidian Space Vikings. <laughs> Dang, dude. Yeah. Um, did you look, like, backward? Because I think the other thing the path did was it, it, it filled out all the way back to book one. Mm -hmm. Right? It brings us this realism to the veil. You know, the, the man with the dew on his cap and, yeah. and the whole work suddenly yeah. becomes so much more real. Um, the idea of, you know, Ragnar, it's like, what did he buy into? What did he 
what faith did he adopt, mm-hmm. right? And and why is this this red faith like so coveted, so cherished by these other characters? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you even get into these moments where Mustang, an atheist, looks at faith and the hope that these people have, and covetous is not the right word, but but she longs to be able to hope and believe mm-hmm. like they do. And she mm-hmm. can't quite bring herself to believe it. And behind, and she hides almost like, she embraces her cynicism mm-hmm. as almost even like an ego defense sometimes because she does covet really yeah. and yeah. long at wow. the same time. And the coveting side is why she engages her ego. Like, and then is a little more cynical about it, but the longing is really the truth of it for her. Right. Um, and she also fears the faith too. <laughs> yes, she does. Right. Yeah. But, I think that for these atheists, otherwise, otherwise, all it is is what Carnus said. You know, a villain shout in the wind, or yeah, yeah. All we are is a shout in the wind. It's how we stand mm-hmm. um, before and how we fall. You know, yeah. Um, and so, if you're an atheist, that's all you have. That's all. Yeah. That and the legacy you leave behind, and the path to the veil is inherently humble. It's an it's a it's a journey to a very simple place. Yeah. It's not like, you know, hmm. two hundred pink virgins are waiting for you there. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's you never not, talk about that really that reward like with that. It's not. I think a lot of world religion is incentivized in yeah. some way, and this doesn't seem like that at all. It's home. Yeah, that's what it's meant to feel like. It's meant to be like feel like a simple home. It, mm, I, I think even a moment like the one we brought up with Mustang, it, it evokes so much emotion in the path, in faith and hope. Um, you spoke of, of rock bottom, right? And like as a person who has dealt with like severe depression in my life, it's, you know, and we'll call it near rock bottom at least, right? Yeah. You do cling on to those moments, like, like, kind of like you spoke about. And you do have that handout and that, that hope that you cling to. And I think like, especially, maybe that's what hit me with Mustang in that moment was like, um, she wants that so bad, and, and I know she can't believe that with, with her atheism, but it's like knowing what I had recovered from and came back from because of that hope that I have, you know, it's, it's, it's just sad to me that, that she can't yeah. partake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, I guess, yeah, I, mean, I have the follow-up to that is like, why doesn't she feel like she can get there when other characters, so many characters around her are buying in, in a way? Like, why is it Mustang that's, you think... Because her identity is intelligence. Yeah. And her intellect is. And her intellect cannot rationalize their actually being a veil. Yeah. Uh, yeah, It's a case of being too smart and being too identified with being smart. Hmm. Interesting. When, what's really faith about? It's about letting go of control, Mm. right? Yeah. Putting faith in something you can't control. Absolutely. Which is inherently at odds with everything she is. <laughs> yeah, and I'm, I'm interested in seeing what you do with that in Red God. You know, like you have yeah. a, a character coming back all the way from the rim who's embraced this faith, and now gonna, is he going to take that to yeah. his wife? Is he not? Is well, are they going to? What's that? And oh, I mean, man, that seems such, like a real such a cool scene coming up. Okay, great, because it <laughs> seems like there's obviously stuff there, and it might. Yeah, well, look at Dara's journey. I mean, he stood before the Senate and he said, "My hand, my religion is the hand and the lever." Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah, it's, yeah. like that's what he was mm-hmm, right. when he when he declared the reign of Mercury and coming back, a very different man, right? And what does Virginia 
see when more than I think Darrow has always been able to pierce through her armor. And so she sees mm. his truth, you know, even when he was, you know, covered in mud at the Institute, she saw like there was a, a man like an, uh, was it an igneous flame of mm. like self, uh, he didn't need some uh, other people witnessing him to burn. Um, you know, and she saw already that fire in him. So I think she sees him more clearly and she'll see the effect this has had on him. She saw it already over the holo. So if she sees it in person, you know, yeah, the hollow scene is so good, dude. Oh, like, that so one was hard to write. It seems like it. I, I love the way that you're able to create a huge vantage point into Darrow that is from her that we don't get even close to from anyone else. No one else, no, no, no one else sees him as the perfectly as the man who's a POV character. Um, to Lyria, he's a giant. Yeah. To Lysander, he's a foil. Uh, to Ephraim, he's you know very far removed. A dick. Yeah, a dick. <laughs> a dick. Yeah, so we just don't get to see it. Mm -hmm. um, and so, but from Virginia's perspective, one of my favorite things about her chapters and Darrow's chapters, but particularly Virginia's, is the insight we get into Darrow. But each char each character gives us a different insight into Darrow. One of my favorite things about Lyria chapters was when she first saw Darrow lying on the medical bed, and he's she's just, and he's just huge, yeah. and he's covered with all the scars, and all she thinks about is. Like, how scary are the people <laughs> that, that he's fighting fight. yeah. that he's this fucked up from fighting them? Like, this guy, mm -hmm. you know? And uh, that sense, like, when Leary first... I love it when characters meet in big epic fantasy series, when a character who's, who's never met, you get to see them from a different perspective. That was always one of my favorite moments of reading those sprawling epics. And so getting to see Darrow through Lyria's eyes, getting to see Darrow through Virginia's eyes, it's not why their characters exist, which is yeah. what makes it so much more fun because it's almost like a lot of times I read books and it's almost like certain characters exist just to uh, prod along the main character yeah. or to view the main character, you know? Just literary tools. Yeah, and so when, I find, when you get to use them as a literary tool to shed some light on the main <laughs> character, it's pretty fun. Lyria is so cool in this book, dude. I, I love her character in this She's book. She's coming to her own. Man. Yeah, it's so fun to... Watch someone grow up, yeah. Because I mean, we got to do that with Darrow and with the, you know the brothers and other people, but we're getting to do it all over again with Lyria. Mm -hmm. It's really fun. I think my favorite chapter with her is Mash Taters. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's really fun. Oh, you like that one best? Because she just owns Darrow so hard in that. Yeah, she's like she's telling him like, "Here's you, your hypocrisy." You're, and you're, you're not the boss. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Like you're gonna give that speech to the daughters, and you're not gonna let me go do this. Uh -huh. and it's like you're not gonna empower me, and she just she just kind of. She always does this, and, and Jeremy and I love that she can stand up and equ um, emotionally equate herself to characters that are not just bigger than her in stature, but I guess in importance in a way. Or in and station, she can just, yeah. in station, and she doesn't feel like a red without giving like an Aaron Sorkin esque speech. Yes, not yeah. the, not the walk and talk. Yeah, or not the walk and talk, <laughs> but you know, or how to say it? Like, I get sometimes very annoyed when um, characters who haven't done much indict characters who have and they're not supposed to come across as bratty like Lyria initially is supposed to come across as mm -hmm. bratty and then she really starts earning it and yeah. earning it and she's a howler now she's a howler now yeah. an eagle at one <laughs> is yeah. that it is that the call I sign now eagle at one man is it, yeah. we're gonna go with that I think, next book? I think she has to okay. I don't know we'll see we'll yeah. see I, like I don't want to drop truffle pig that's just too fun yeah truffle but, pig is too good yeah oh man <laughs> also one of my favorite characters is <laughs> when she's talking with the uh, the ranger and fell yeah fell fell so cool and it's she's like you never get to choose your first call sign yeah and he says what was yours badass motherfucker <laughs> <laughs> that was so good I forgot about that 
Yeah, yeah, I loved that. He's so short-lived, man. So short-lived. Because I actually thought that he lived somehow. And I don't know, on the first read, I thought he was like, oh, he's... Nah, he, homie got mutilated. Yeah, he, he got messed up. Yeah, but I, I think that's also a great way of subtly world-building mm. because guys can be that badass and then a gold dust walker yeah. comes up and it's like, good night. That was fun because that was the first time we got to see... Well, one of the first times, I just say, we got to see what gold would look like through Leary's eyes. And she couldn't even, she couldn't even make out what's happening in terms of she, her vision wasn't yeah. good enough to like see how fast things were even yeah. moving. Yeah. She's she like, thought they were over there. They were, what the? Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. That was so crazy. Yeah. And <laughs> she can't do anything against yeah, them. Just, yeah. Because if, if she could, then it all of a sudden demeans all the other stuff we've talked about, right? Yeah. As series go on, characters tend to get more powerful. Um, even characters are not supposed to be powerful. Um, and so, what I've really tried to do is, is maintain that, like, it would take like th 20, maybe 30 reds in a fist fight to take down, like, a peerless guard. Mm -hmm. um, and having to remember that is really hard sometimes. Yeah. Because the power bloat is a big problem in series. I think, like, toward the end of the book, I, so I'll preface this with this. So, you do a really good job of battle realism like you just talked about you know someone who's badass can come in and i get these very like saving private ryan or uh, band of brothers kind of like something that tries to encapsulate real war mm -hmm. and a guy can get blown away serafina um, serafina <laughs> ajax yeah oh that. yeah and it, and it brings a realism <laughs> you seem to in, in your pacing you seem to have kind of two speeds of war to me you have your your dark age which is very much like, you know, audio-wise, it's, it's in my ears, subwoofers blaring, confusing, disorienting almost, right? It, gives it me is a, hitting you in the face repeatedly. It does, and it gives me a, a sense that I'm in the battle mm -hmm. and I'm disoriented almost, mm -hmm. right? And that's the Dark Age feel. And then we can fast forward to like Volsung Fa, and you have this ability in the middle of an epic battle to slow the pace down. And there's almost like this sense of, I think of when I, when I fall or in, in a moment in athletics, I, I think I use that analogy when I was describing it, where um, you know, you're, you're sprinting for a finish line and a you can actually feel milliseconds from then on, right? Mm -hmm. And you, you seem to be able to like slow that time down in those kind of moments. I mean, is this something you're intentionally mm -hmm. doing to give these fights different feels? Yeah, very much so. And I would say I have a couple different speeds of war than that even. Um, the battle for Phobos, for instance, um, introduces uh, how Virginia is in war. And for her, it's math. And she's in the calm of this eye of the storm, which we haven't really seen in that particular way before. Which then, uh, so it's like, how would I say it? It's the slow, the, as the, the, the ships are circling like sharks. Mm -hmm. And then finally, there's an inciting incident. And then things just start, you know, rolling down the hill towards chaos, right? Mm -hmm. And you know, how do you keep it interesting from her perspective, right? So I contrast that with Lysander doing the hit you in the face type, which yeah. is him coming down in a rain, right? And then contrast that with Virginia doing like math. Yeah. And then, yeah. then Virginia's on the run and it's high speed again, but then Lysander's kind of doing math. And so it's like going back and <laughs> forth between them. Um, and so I think of it kind of like as an accordion, um, oh, wow. you know, and so you, with tension, you know, how to say it? Tension being the the sound that's coming out, you know, in in my mind uh, for the metaphor, and so it's very intentional, um, and I love the the kind of moments that pop you out of it. 
like Daryl going into his breath of stone thing. Yeah. And then he barely notices someone coming into the circle. Uh, and then there's so in the zone. Yeah. He's so in the, in the zone and it, it starts incorporating the outside world then starts filtering into those millisecond moments that you're talking about, but he has a vague awareness of it. And then all of a sudden boom, he's back and feels like cold water has been splashed on him. <laughs> so I love that stuff. And I'm very glad you keyed in on it because, um, I think it's very important to do in action scenes to make them matter. Um, you know, uh, like uh, Mad Max Fury Road. One of the wonderful things that uh, George Miller decided to do in that is adjust the frame rate based on the type of tension that he wanted hmm. or the shutter speed. And so you see all different types of frame rate in that movie, which can make this image seem jerkier or sped up or slowed down, all depending on what he wanted the audience hmm. to be feeling. And I thought that was very neat. I think my favorite... Example of that for me in Lightbringer would be the, the juxtaposition of the fight with Apple and the fight with Fa. Like they feel like different speeds big mm -hmm. time. Well, the, the Apple, he's just, he's just in it because he, yeah. he, he doesn't have the agency. Yeah. I mean, he says so. I mean, Daryl has that line that really stuck with me in this moment where he's like, I'm not enough. And like my form isn't enough. Nothing is enough. For, mm -hmm. And he knows that something has to change in that moment. Mm -hmm. And then you fast forward yeah. to get to Fa and it's like, lots of things have changed and, and they're still changing even in the moment mm -hmm. where he's embracing instead of trying to be that blunt object or like you've said go through mm -hmm. he's letting something control him mm -hmm. and he's like and that's those two speeds to me are just like whoa like night night and day duels like they couldn't be different from each other but they're so fun and, and i love those yeah i think it's uh, it's fun for me to just think like uh, the ra all the razor nerds, razor masters in the society, like studying Darrow and his tapes. Yeah, you know, like yeah. seeing it's him like killing. watching basketball it's players like watching, watching film. Yeah, it's like watching basketball players watching film. You know, <laughs> and it's like everyone has studied you. Like That's you are fantastic. the object of attention for ten years. Yeah. you're the object of obsession. You know, because until you die, they how to say golds are not angry. Darrow is uh, a gold. They're not angry. They're insulted. Yeah, because <laughs> he's being better than them. Yes. And that's, so there cannot be golds until he's beaten. You know, they can't be razor masters until he's beaten. So it'd be like, you know, uh, what was it? Was it, uh, was it not, not Kobe? Um, some uh, famous athlete would put his opponents, uh, the guy who's the best, they put um, his face on the mirror every day so mm. he would see it. Um, that seems very Kobe, though. It seems very Kobe, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, these guys are all Kobe'd, and like, imagine Kobe's. Imagine Kobe is playing in the same at the same time as Michael, and everyone knows Michael's better. Yeah. Imagine how that would drive Kobe fucking nuts. Yeah. He'd have one purpose in life. Yeah. You know, and so that's what a lot of these crazy razor masters across the society are like, and I just <laughs> love that of Darrow not knowing who's coming. You know, Cassie's yeah. like, oh, these other guys are pretty scary. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's like that goes back to like what chapter four when. Cassius is telling that story about the stag. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like, mm -hmm. this isn't going to be what you think it's going to be. He is still going to put your head on his wall. Yeah, no matter what. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So then what was the, ch so I guess that the story about the stag mm. was, is there, it's a, it's a really opening question and I don't know how to ask it. So I'm sure. going to ask it as best I can. Other than the apple fight, did that feel to you at all? Like it was telling something about the, about maybe Cassius's arc or, or even Darrow's arc throughout the, the journey? Is there any like correlations there? For me, it was Cassius's disillusionment began at a young age, but he never recognized it. Like he should have been very disillusioned. He had this romantic idea of a hunt that he was going to have. He mm -hmm. has a romantic idea of war and what it's supposed to be like. And then he sees, well, he's not taking part in this war. 
And so you see him constantly being surprised at this war. Look when he goes and attacks the obsidians. Yeah. And he thinks he knows what's going to happen. Pele, pele, pele. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, oh, this is not the war I know. Yeah. You know, and he sees all the horror of it. And Severo's kind of looking at him like, you're fresh to war. And yeah. he even says that to him, you know. And Honor was the first thing that died. Yeah, Honor was the first thing that died. And Cassius is still having to learn that. And I like his stubbornness. Mm. So it's not necessarily like key to his overall like arc, but he doesn't want to admit that Honor has died. Mm-hmm. And in the end, he proves that it hasn't. Yeah. Oh. And so... We, it always comes back, man. We guys keep, just, <laughs> this is the Cassius podcast. Yeah. Just rename it. Oh, take down the Hail Reaper and oh, put Cassius. Yeah, so it's kind of like um, Cassius, you know, doing the, proving the honor exists is kind of a repudiation of his first disillusionment to me. Mm. Um, yeah. And I, also, also, he was wrong about the Minotaur, um, which is interesting to note. Yes. He was wrong about him. Um, and I think that's also fascinating. He didn't want to be the, pick up the scraps of what Darrow was, right? Exactly. He didn't do what Cassius did. He didn't shoot Darrow at a watering hole and mount his head on the wall, you know? And I think that's also important to note because Cassius doesn't have to be right just because he's saying something kind of cool. Uh, but I think it also shows him how he doesn't understand the Minotaur, and Darrow yeah. did. And it also gives Darrow enough of an understanding of the guy to be like, uh, not an idiot going into the situation. He was right. The Minotaur didn't want to kill him in a cheap way. And that mm. saved his life. Yeah. I think that first when we came across it, Jeremy, we thought it was like, in a way we thought it was plot armor. It's What's funny. What's that, the Minotaur not killing him? Yeah. I remember we talked to you at one point and you thought, you said something about 007 movies. You know, mm-hmm. like the, the villain explains the entire plot and he's like, oh, and he gives the hero mm-hmm. a time mm-hmm. to escape. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy thought, and I first gut reaction, we actually didn't say this. We just kind of talked about it. And it was, it's not, we're not being insulting, but we're like, mm-hmm. oh, he kind of like, that seemed kind of weird, right? Mm-hmm. And we're like, I guess so. It's like kind of what Pierce doesn't like, but you go back and you reread it again. And With you're the like, stag understanding especially. This, the stag really brings it, a lot of clarity to that. Is it plot armor of the Minotaur is behaving exactly as his, well, see, the, as his so character has behaved the entire time? Yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, which is he's there for the emotions of it, yeah. right. for the beauty of it. The and, majesty of and war. And the yeah. insecurity that he says when people will say I'm a vulture, mm-hmm. you know, picking up Atlantis scraps, Lysander scraps. The Minotaur's not that guy. He's not Atlas. <laughs> yeah. Now, if it was Atlas, that'd be bogus. Yeah. Um, so I think that it's not plot armor when the characters are behaving exactly the yeah. way they would behave. Yeah. You know, it's Severo. It was a lack of understanding. I'm saying well, this is a lack well, of understanding know, on our part, not, no, oh, not no, no, what no, you're no, saying. No, 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 I'm not saying that. I'm, I'm, I'm not saying you still think that. Um, I think that often plot armor is overused, just like the term fridging is overused. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that um, what's important is characters behave the way that they are made unless they're importantly behaving in a different way and you're trying to do something with that. Um, so for instance, if that was Atlas instead of the Minotaur, it wouldn't have worked, you know? <laughs> yeah. And also okay. Lysander was being warned by Glorastes about uh, Apollonius saying, the guy's a madman, he's just in it for the thrill, yeah. for, the sen- for the sensation, I think, or something. Mm. And, Poor Glorastes. And, and, there, and, and then again... He was right. So, you know, and Lysander knew that was a risk. <laughs> but also then that plays into the concept of Lysander and the Minotaur's balance of like, are you going to operate them? You've done it your way. You created some problems. Now you're going to do it my way. Yeah. Uh, so I don't know. I, I, I like it. But I also like being accused of plot armor because then it lets you analyze the text and see if it stands up to the fact that it might not be. Yeah. And, th- and this is, you know, we talked off pod right before we started rolling about yeah. reading speed. And this is one of the reasons why I no longer <laughs> am afraid to say I'm a slow reader is uh-huh. because you hit these things. And at first glance, when you're just rolling through, you have these sensations of, oh, like plot armor, like Bond villain, you mm-hmm. know? Mm-hmm. Uh, and then 
you go back and you're like, no, nah, I, I got to do this chapter again. There's yeah. something I'm missing. Well, I thought putting uh, sharks with lasers on their heads in there. <laughs> that would have been great. Yeah. Spectre. I don't know. It kind of works. Work. Apollonius would do that. Like, he'd be like, yeah, let's put some lasers. Oh, Apollonius there. and, uh, <laughs> yeah, what, what, not the not Bond villain. What's uh, in Austin Powers? Dr. Evil. Yeah. Uh, Apollonius and Dr. Evil would have a great time together. <laughs> I thought they would. I would, but, I would love but that. But you get, you get the context. You, you get the reading comprehension after sure. that, right? And, sure. And like you said, you... You create, you do the work ahead of time yeah. and you create these arcs and you create these characters and then they flow through the story and you yeah. find, well, that's, oh, you know what, this, this actually is what Apollonius is all about. Yeah. Mm. And I think that there's a great insecurity when you're writing sometimes that uh, in a situation like that, you will think that it is ludicrous or it is plot armor. Um and so at certain points, just like the path, you have to accept that these are what the characters would do in your ridiculous world, you know, in your crazy, you know, made up world that, that I made. <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes you even get insecure about that. And then you just really have to trust that the characters, are they behaving the way they would behave? And, I'll, and I, I was just thinking how upset Apollonius would be reflecting upon that moment yes. that he killed Darrow like that, you know, even in his own mind, what does he have to look forward to then? And in my mind, he's delighted that Darrow escaped. He's like, that plucky bastard, yeah. you know? <laughs> he wants that. He's the Joker, right? He, yeah. wants that, he wants that relationship with Batman almost in a way that's like... Um, he is very much... I never thought of that. He yeah. very much, what would I be without you? Yes. Very yeah. much so. I mean, look, look how delighted he was, you know, when um, he was working with Darrow, you know, uh, when they were uh, clearing off the top of the Ash Lord's spire together. You know, he's just... He loves being on the same side as Darrow, mm -hmm. but he also really yeah. wants to kill him. <laughs> yeah. It, and that's like, yeah, I, I guess I see that. I didn't, that Joker thing, I just popped in my head right now. Dude, it's yeah. 100% accurate. Yeah. yeah. What would I be without you? Yeah. 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 Like you complete me or you whatever that, me. Yeah, that yeah. was words they said. So, okay. This is, the, this is a tough one for me to voice. Okay. Because I think that Jeremy and I have been wanting to ask you this for a long time. This is really just more for us, I think, than anyone else. So um, it's going to be a long, meandering thought that's okay. going to eventually turn into a question. <laughs> I'm curious. Kick back and relax. Yes, go ahead. Yeah, just put your oh, feet. Yeah, yeah. Yep. Okay. The whole series, the idea, or there's like a theme, I don't know what you want to call it, idea, theme, quality of mercy and what its role is in the series. I think it really gets expressed in Iron Gold as the world gets more, it gets bigger and gets more complicated. Mm -hmm. You have this line that really unlocks the book for me in Iron Gold, mercy emboldens evil men. It's this Arcosian saying that gets brought up twice, once by the Duke of Hands and another time by Mustang at the mm -hmm. end of the book. You go into Dark Age. The theme keeps reoccurring. It keeps coming up. You go into Lightbringer, and it's explored by both antagonists and protagonists. Mm -hmm. And Calendora and Lysander have a conversation about this mm -hmm. on Mercury and, like, yeah. who deserves mercy? What's the justification for Cruelty it? is a thermal runaway. Yeah. yeah. And so in here you get to some quotes here from Lightbringer, I mean, you have Darrow right off the bat. There's no mercy, go unpunished. Just exploring that idea mm -hmm. in his head, still wrestling with this idea. You have, um, you know, several, I believe in chapter 11, yes, um, that, you know, we've, we've been too merciful. We had Atlas and we let him go. We had Apollonius and we let him go. We've, we're pixies, he says. Mm -hmm. We've messed it up. Yeah, we don't deserve to win. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And then the line that really makes me explore this in my head so much is, um, you more than anyone should know the perils of mercy more than anyone except for Darrow. I think you, it seems like a lot of times you express mercy as a defect, mm -hmm. but yet that's what we want from our characters. Mm -hmm. We want 
our, our characters, you know, the protagonists. Mm-hmm. We want Darrow. We want Cassius. We want them to be merciful, yet mercy, or Virginia as well. Yeah, every time they exhibit mercy, it, it's to their detriment. Mm-hmm. I, every time you bring this up, because there's lots of quotes about mercy in, mm-hmm. this, in, this, in this series, I feel as if you're putting a mirror up to me and asking me what I think. Mm-hmm. The question, as weird as it is, what is, what is your thoughts and what is your intention with mercy in the Red Rising world? Great question. The whole thing can be summed up as if Darrow and Virginia knew how everything was going to turn out in books four, five, six, would they still spare Lysander's life Mm -hmm. when he's a child? That's the entire question. Would they kill Lysander when he hasn't done anything wrong? 10-year-old boy. Would they kill a 10-year-old boy? you know, even though he helped, gave her the scepter, mm-hmm. um, would they go back to that moment and kill him? You know, if they would face that moment again at the end of the series, would they? So, for instance, if there was another heir of empire, so to speak, you know, let's say there's a Lysander clone. There's not. <laughs> <laughs> let's say there's like a Lysander clone. <laughs> doing that twice. Uh, <laughs> it just keeps going. <laughs> Red, the next series, Red Falling. Red, uh, yeah. You heard it here. Yeah. Another clone. Uh, Red Renewing. Yeah. Um, let's say let's say seven. Let's say seven. Book seven ends. There is a Lysander character, like a Lysander clone or something. It's like ten. Um, do they? kill him knowing what they've learned about the, uh, the mercy in the past. Mm-hmm. And what does that say about the morality if they do? How do you feel as a reader about that? Exactly. That's why I feel like you're that's, that's the entire point of it. Yeah. And I'm not going to tell you what my intention is because I can't um, because the book has to represent. And I also think certain things should be represented by the material. And if I tell you, then I'm making up your mind for you. Mm. And I don't want to do that. It's the same way I do politics in the books, you know? And so, I think by book seven, you'll be able to tell me that answer. Okay. Yeah. Cool. Jimmy, you want to follow that up? Yeah. <laughs> it, it, the idea is, is very interesting, but it, and you don't try to impart too much, right? But it still feels philosophically more like Hobbesian to me, mm-hmm. right? Because in fact, if mercy can embolden evil men, mm-hmm. right? If they could rely on that. Mm-hmm. If, if you go back to your analogous, like, do you kill baby Hitler mm-hmm. kind, of, kind of question, like you have to believe in, in a flawed fallen world, essentially. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean... But, but that's a different thing. Because if we go back and kill baby Hitler, we already know what Hitler will do. Right. But if there was another child mm. who we don't know what he's going to do, but he could go wrong. It's the same, same, same situation, same circumstance. You know, um, it's not predestined. He could go wrong. Big chance he might. Do you have faith that there's hope? Do you walk the path to the veil? <laughs> or do you believe in the Hobbesian world? Right. Well, we know what Quick does. Yeah. We know what Quick does, exactly. Right. We know what a lot of these characters do. And a lot of characters, what they would do at certain times. And it is Hobbesian. It's meant to represent that. Okay. It's, but also think about how Darrow got a lot of his best friends. You know, it was mercy to Cassius mm-hmm. that allowed Cassius mm-hmm. to have this arc. So just because these warnings are all around the Red Rising world about mercy, mercy has also given a lot to Darrow. Um, it saved him in many ways. Mustang not 
greasing there on the tunnels, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, Cassius uh, having mercy and not killing Darrow for killing his brother when he has Darrow in his power. Many times throughout, the best relationships are created when someone takes enough of a risk to have mercy, which is exactly what Kalandora says. No one can afford to take the risk to have mercy, yeah. right? So mercy comes with great risk. So do you still take the risk in the face of a Hobbesian world? That's the question. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. We had been thinking about that mercy thing so much, like the idea, the concept, and, and talking about it. We don't bring it up much on our podcast because um, we're not authorities on this series. We're fans. Mm-hmm. I mean, and we're speculating. So we mm-hmm. don't want to always just try to answer for you. And that's why, but last time I wanted to ask that question and I was like, <laughs> we don't have time. And also it's just going to deviate. So thank you for that's that. That's been percolating. Yeah. 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 So it's been, yeah, it's been, it, it's, it's been asked at the right time. Well, so much of this is me exploring themes as well. Mm-hmm. And through the act of writing, I'm finding and discovering answers and my own theories evolve as mm-hmm. I go. And that's not to say that anything is contradictory, but it's still an exploration. That's what I look at writing as. And that's why I'm not so confident as to preach to my audience what the right way is. And that's also why I'm hesitant to take a stance on a lot of this stuff, like, you know, give you an authoritatively what mercy means in the series or what I believe in it. Because I think that if I say something that isn't represented in the text, then it feels a little bit like retconning my themes. Mm. Or it feels like I am now setting the sandbox up for you guys and telling you you're wrong. No. When that's something I'm uncomfortable doing. Um, uncomfortable doing that with a lot of things, a lot of the themes and a lot of the politics in the series. Well, it, it does seem like you just ask questions to the readers, not preach to them. And I hope so. Thank you. I, I think I get a sense that most likely you're asking yourself those questions mm-hmm. actually. And it mm-hmm. just comes across to us as if you're asking us. Mm-hmm. Is that Good. right? Yeah. The, well, these, the characters are test cases. You mm-hmm. know, these are mm-hmm. hypotheticals. In this hypothetical situation, it's like, then what is the answer? Sometimes there's probably a more authoritative answer um, in some of the stuff. But, um, you know, uh, allowing a reader to see both sides of the coin, both sides of the argument, and then to make their decision, I feel is far more compelling and sticks with people longer and sticks with me when I'm a reader than being told by someone who, which then turns into a lecture. And I, I don't know about you mm. guys, but when I feel like someone is lecturing to me, I shut off. Yeah. Um, I ego defend. And part of the beauty of sci-fi fantasy is that it's not seeped in the um, politics and the um, social stuff of our world. More so, you enter into a world and you that functions by a certain set of rules, and then you're able to drop your guard. You know, if someone tells you something that you don't agree with politically, you're in this world, you're more likely to go into ego defense um, or disagree with them based on our totally different upbringings, perhaps, mm-hmm. or uh, totally different uh, religions or ways we've seen the world or trauma that's happened to us. All these things shape our opinions in this world. And so when you go into another world and go in sci-fi and fantasy, then you can meet in almost like a, an agora. Think of it as a public agora and then find out what is essentially true. Because you can discuss ideas without all the, the, the attachments that you would have here, without the defense of an ego. Like say for instance, um, someone um, has a different opinion on immigration from you, uh, probably influenced by myriad factors, which you know nothing about in their life, right? right? And then you 
perhaps have a different opinion than them. And so then you kind of wall up and it oftentimes can turn into an argument. Not saying that you particularly, but I don't want it to turn into an argument between me and the reader. Mm. It's a discussion when it's more so, how about this hypothetical? And yeah. I feel like that's more fun to deal with and also leaves a better impact. Yeah. I think that positing an idea and letting us ruminate on it mm -hmm. gives us, honestly, your, your, your books are great for podcasting. Because <laughs> <laughs> yeah. that conversation is it's more natural that way. Yeah. If you were steering the morality of like mercy, for example, if you're steering the ship on that, we couldn't have conversations about that as much as we do. Like we went, we went super deep. So mercy emboldens evil men is a, is a thing we hyper-focused on it. And I was Google searching it. I was like trying to find it. I actually found, and Jeremy read it, Timon of Athens. There is actually a, a parallel quote that is almost identical. What, is, what, is, what does he say? It's Shakespeare. But what is, the, what is the quote again? Do you remember? Uh, I'd have to look it up. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry. But it's very similar to Mercy Emboldens Evil Men. It's almost, huh. it's almost a parallel. And so Jeremy please, read... Please follow up with me and send that. Yeah, I'm Jeremy curious, read the, whole, yeah. Read the whole, uh, whole play. Yeah. Because it was like we wanted to understand... I've not read that play. We, we were trying to understand... <laughs> Maybe I did. Shit, I don't think I did. <laughs> we were you trying to understand it. your idea of mercy. So we, went, we were going deep those layers deep. Yeah. But, but if you, again, if you told us exactly. I mean, I can ask you, mm -hmm. but if you told us in the book so directly, we wouldn't do those things mm -hmm. and we wouldn't explore and I think better ourselves. I think Jeremy bettered himself by doing that. And he informed me on it. Like, cause I didn't have time to do it, but we were able to have a talk about that book. Well, I think that's, that's really cool. You know, and those are the lessons passed down to us by, you know, the great writers of like Dostoevsky is exploring things. He's not offering judgment. He's saying this is. And then, you know, you get to offer judgment or sympathy based on what you think. Um, Tolstoy is a little bit more giving things. <laughs> but, yeah, it's those writers which always made me keep thinking about it, you know, long into my, uh, long after I've read the book. You know, I'm driving and I idly am, like, starting to think, well, what did they mean by this? Mm -hmm. Yeah, like Cormac McCarthy, for instance, does that. He just presents what is um, and then lets you find the themes, like search for the themes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And very much the same way. It has that same sort of Hobbesian feel where, um, the town in which Shakespeare sets the play, mm -hmm. um, you know, there's a, the wealthy aristocrat benefactor, uh, he, he holds court and he, he just gives away all of his possessions and he essentially continues to give and is taken advantage of until he has nothing left. And then he becomes disillusioned. He, he has hate for these people and, and it really just, it's a fascinating thought piece, really. It just, it just plays with the tension between those two things. Of like, fascinating. He goes off, he becomes recluse, and, like, you know, and he's kind of fighting against reality of, uh -huh. of that Hobbesian view of, of life. Cool. I mean, I'll have to check this out. Ready? Yeah. Nothing emboldens sin so much as mercy. That's a great quote. It's so close to yours, yeah. and you didn't even know it. You're well, like a regular just, Shakespeare. That's cool. <laughs> well, that's the, that, that's the fun thing is, is when you find someone like that, what... Uh, I think of it as is, is you stumble onto an essential truth, mm -hmm. right? That's right, yeah. And um, how happy I am that I like my version better. <laughs> <laughs> I do too, I'm, I'll be yeah. honest. Yeah. It's a, it's, it, it gets right to the it's point. It's not often with Shakespeare you can say that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it, it's more, it cuts. Yeah. The, there's a flow to his, mm -hmm. yes, but mm -hmm. yours cuts, it gets direct to the point. And when it's said from the Duke of Hands, you just, Whap, like just like in, in the face. Of I love villains given yeah. wisdom. I love this <laughs> yeah. villain spit. And wisdom. it feels like that. It's like, whoosh, like yeah. whoa. Atlas has some of those in, in this one. Well, he, he says that other one about mercy. It's mm -hmm. like, you know, it's 
it's been his downfall. Mm -hmm. Marrow's downfall has been mercy, and it's it's been yours too. So Mm -hmm. like, knock it off. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it's imparting that wisdom, and brings me to something with Lysander. With the end of the book, you get to this moment between him and Pallas, Mm -hmm. and Pallas Al Greca. Yeah. The most gold name you've ever came up with. The most gold name. That that is like the gold of gold names. (laughs) I love it. I love it. I was like, dude, like, wow, okay. Chill chill out, Yeah, chill out, man. Like, like, slow down. I love it. We get it. Yeah. (laughs) No, um, I believe she's the one who asks him in the garter, Mm -hmm. you know, how did you get here? What made you, Mm -hmm. what made you do this? Mm -hmm. And he says, I was shown how the world's worked. I, I'll be, I, I wanted a lot more from that moment, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. I like what it was, but it felt like I was, I was, I think I told Jimmy, I was like, um, oh, here we go. He's going to like, he's going to give this <laughs> epic Lysander speech. It's going to be this thing. And even though I hate these guts in this moment, I'm still ready for this long, you know, I guess he's going to try to make himself look moral and awesome in this mm-hmm. moment and, and, and kind of. I don't even know. Just trying to make us sure, look awesome. Sure, And yeah. it was just a sentence. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I've shown how the world worked. And what, the fact that he didn't do that is that he knows how the world works. Mm. I was going to ask you, like, what Brevity, you get that conciseness. Point? He gave the best speech of the book to the Col- in the Colosseum of Rome. Yeah. He doesn't have to do that. Yeah. Why would he have to convince her? Mm-hmm. Results. Yeah. Succinct. You know, he, he, he's taken the garter. He has nothing to prove to Paulus. Yeah. And she, he's not trying to convince her of her, his morality at that point because she's, it doesn't matter. All Paulus, the first time Paulus has given him respect is when he's shown that he has guts and resolve. Yeah. That's and all. He, and he results. produces results. And he produces yeah. results. He knew his audience. And that's there. very gold of him, right? Yep. It's, it's like, I got it done. Yep. <laughs> yeah. That's it. And it's, yeah. So, I mean. And so for me, that's exactly the point. Okay. I get it. But I, I wanted to sure. I wanted to ask you how you arrived at that because I think that as I'm literally as I'm reading the page, I'm like, here we go, here we go, here we go. And then it's like single sentence. I'm like, oh. It's because okay. it's because he just killed his best friend. You know? Yeah. Um he it's almost like to me, he thinks explaining himself completely in that situation is beneath him because of the results that he has garnered. Yeah. You know? Now going back home, perhaps spitting out, you know, talking to the other golds, way different. But to Paulus, an operator, you know, and after, and especially the lesson was taught by Atlas, and the simplicity of it is mm-hmm. that Atlas just showed him how the world works. Yeah. Uh, so I loved the succinctness of it too. But also, I thought that at that point, it hits home if it's just one word. It's almost like dismissive. Yeah. Um, so it was effective for Lysander because he's over it. The progression of character. <laughs> yeah. The final form yeah. guess, of his character. Well, it's the same reason I chose to kill Ajax in that way. Yeah. The whole smallness of it was the point. It was, felt, felt like it was going to be this huge thing. And he just got too far ahead of his team, you know, too, too big for his britches. And, and that's war. I was going to bring up Ajax because that's another one that Philip and I talked about mm-hmm. in the run up to the pods is how much of a, an arc he's going on. Like he's changing, he's coming around. We filled out his character so much. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you essentially are, are winding the, the spring in the watch mm-hmm. and you're about to get to watch it tick, but mm-hmm. instead he's just gone. One of my favorite point, uh, my, my favorite lines in the book uh, to write was Lysander saying, all we've done, that, that moment in Rome, um, Ajax, all we've sacrificed 
um, we can't retreat. Um, and he's like, and what, what was this all for if, if, it's, if, we, if we've lost? And he says, no, what, what was it all for? Um, and uh, Roan just looks at him and says, this is it's war. Yeah. This is war. <laughs> <laughs> and it's Lysander's first introduction to the Hobbesian world in a way. Mm. Um, and Ajax, and, uh, and I get it, like you want, I mean, I, one of the things I had written for this, um, which would be kind of maybe fun to throw out there one day, is this like 14-page duel between Diomedes and Ajax. Oh my gosh, um, wow. <laughs> that was originally at the end of the book. Um, but it didn't ever feel right. And I rewrote and wrote that thing so many times. And damn, it was fun to write. <laughs> and damn, it was cool. But it didn't work. It was drawing the conflict toward what I thought the audience wanted as opposed to where it should go, which is the conflict has to be between Cassius, Lysander, and Darrow. Um, near the end of the book. And, and two, well, two characters, Diomedes and Ajax, where I really like them, um, they were taking too much attention away from those people at the end of the book. And thematically, it wasn't working. It, was, it, it just wasn't, the, the book was getting lopsided for me. And so then I brought Ajax to the front of the book and built him up in a different way and had him die in a way that f feels almost like disrespectful. Yeah. Um, and I felt like that said more about war, more about his character and his overconfidence and the shit can go wrong yeah. than anything that was in the last half of the book. I mean, I, I even wanted to put a degree of separation between us actually seeing it. Um, like On the hollow that he's yeah, watching drone, after the fact. Just shitty drone footage, yeah. just after the fact. <laughs> and it's like, it's like Ozymandias saying like, you know, I did this 20 minutes ago at the end of Watchmen. You know, it's already happened. There's yeah. nothing he can do to affect it. Yeah. And it wasn't even close because Ajax just got tactically outmaneuvered. Yeah, his his hubris got the best of him in that. Yeah. He's like, I can go and do this. And like, sweet, go for it, bro. And yeah, but you know what? Never mind. There's other wolves out there. Yeah. And I think that's the thing that you can sometimes forget when he can kill anyone in any room anywhere. Um, even Darrow probably. Like Ajax against Darrow. Close one. Breath of Stone Darrow or, I mean. <laughs> Breath of Stone Darrow, I don't know. But yeah. like, you know, Darrow says like fighting Ajax is like being dunked into cold water. The That that scene in the prologue of Dark mm -hmm. Ages, yeah. Yeah. It's so good. And I always wanted to get them together again to have another fight. And I desperately wanted to see Ajax fight Diomedes. And I know that it doesn't feel like the catharsis like the reader necessarily wants because I know I wanted that <coughs> other sort of catharsis. But Everything is a trade-off, and I thought that the bringing his death forward in a different way taught different lessons and also removed a shield from Lysander, mm -hmm. much like Ragnar dying yeah. for Darrow did, and it made Lysander far more exposed and vulnerable, and also seeing how he keeps having to sacrifice friends to get to the throne. So we have Eidme instead of Edme. Mm -hmm. Diomedes. Diomedes. Or how'd you just say you it? You can call him Diomedes or Diomedes. Okay, just making sure we got the pronunciation, Diomedes, guys. Yeah. You're the, you're the <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean... <laughs> the source yeah, but, here. But there's, there's, there's many different spheres, many different accents. Yeah, you've told so, us that. So, you know, you know, if you say it wrong, just I'll just pretend you're Venusian. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Cautious. Yeah, yeah. yeah. cautious. <laughs> yeah. Cautious. A couple hours ago, you know, you... <laughs> it's funny now, but you, uh, you talked about subverting expectations, right? Mm -hmm. And I... And I I have a hard time with that. And I'm, my mind is actually going back there right now. I was thinking about that as you were responding to Philip. And I think that normally I'm okay with it, but I think with great novels, 
it's, it's very difficult mm -hmm. because as we're going through these beats, as we're talking through these questions, suddenly I go, oh, Ajax, that's right. There was one that I felt in the moment, mm -hmm. right? The, the lead up to the, to the possible speech that never happened, mm -hmm. the Cassius death, right? All these things could be something I consider to be one of those expectations. Mm -hmm. But I think with a great novel in hindsight, once you get to the end, especially after a reread, and you understand it, in, it holistically, I don't think anything is subverted. And I think it, it, it mm -hmm. hides and covers over those first initial thoughts until mm -hmm. I'm reminded of them. Mm -hmm. And I think to answer your question from back then, <laughs> yeah, that's how I feel about, about Lightbringer. Interesting. Yeah. And that hopefully is the sign of a work that is at least inherent, uh, inherent uh, internally coherent. Because hmm, right. um, you can be feel like dis like disappointed, uh, violated, um, let down by certain scenes in the moment, but then if you look back on it, it feels like it was always there. Yeah, I feel like that's hopefully the sign of a holistic thing. I mean, Darrow on the garbage barge was was one of those we for me as well. Barge. Yeah, the garbage barge scene. <laughs> Were you surprised about him on the garbage barge? It was because I didn't take into context the path because yeah. I didn't see his transition yet, and it, as it was unfolded later on. It, it all made sense. Yeah. But in the moment, looking back on, on his depression, on just the emptiness he feels, the identity crisis he has from, you know, going from thinking he's great in, in I'm not going to call it the first trilogy, <laughs> in the beginning of the series. Don't you dare. In the beginning of the series. <laughs> in his youth. <laughs> in his youth. Right. To the... Pro, Phil, help me. Prologue of uh, Iron Gold, right? Where, where he, he's struggling, and you know, you you know this obviously, but and he's struggling. <laughs> many they call him many different names: mm -hmm. like father, you know, savior. All the, I, I can't remember all of them, but then, yeah. but he feels Slave like a boy. King, he yeah, feels, feels like, like a boy. boy yeah. yeah, he starts to separate himself with those things, right? And and so you you jump from that, and then the apex of that is, of course, Dark Age, yeah. where nothing is going right, and, and now they're on the back foot, and suddenly he's beginning to grasp the hope, right? And and it's that, that transition that you made. Um, I, I remember feeling that in the moment, right? And, and talking to Philip and saying, I, I don't mean to say this about Pierce, but like, I just don't think Daryl would act like this. I don't think that's where he is with his mental and emotional state. In right which now. part? In the garbage barge. Oh, the garbage the, barge. Yeah. yeah. But then as we continue, <laughs> what? <laughs> I love calling it the garbage, garbage barge. barge. It's like funny. It. Yeah. yeah. And as we continue, it's we like joking, trash moon. Like trash moon my moon. editor, yeah, yeah, trash moon. And again, it's the coherence of the of the of the book as a whole. And in retrospect, understanding the impact of that that hope and that faith had on Darrow. Mm -hmm. And now I can look back and go, uh, that makes complete sense. That was to always me. meant to be there. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting, particularly when you're this invested in a series and you think you know. I mean, you do know the characters so well. Um, and the the character you know will never be the character I know. The character right. uh, Philip knows will never be a character you know, because <laughs> we shape them. And that's what's so different from books from movies is that the eye of the 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 the, the or the read the brain of the reader is far more powerful than the eye of the beholder, um, because when a movie is there, it is it is like sealed in amber. That's mm -hmm. what it always is, right? But a book will have constant permutations mm -hmm. based on your brain interpreting words based on the rest of the experiences you have in your life and the associations you have. And so that's why I think the magic of books is, is that each of us will have a different um, character in our head that it could be 99% the same. Um, yet 
will always have a little bit of difference. And right there, you're seeing the cognitive dissonance between what you think the character should be doing versus what you think I'm doing with him. But right. you don't yet know what I'm doing with it. Yeah, yeah exactly. That, I know it's a, it's a fun long series are fun like that because there's like a territorial thing. Like, how dare you do my boy like this? Yeah. <laughs> there's like, and that's what Reddit's for. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a lot of readers that told me in Dark Age that they like, and in the book four and five that they stopped started disliking Darrow, and I'm like, oh, you dislike a warlord who destroys planets and calls down bombardments and massacres yeah. people by the thousands, you're probably on this. Good on you. Good on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. exactly. You, you dislike an asshole who doesn't listen to his wife. Good yeah, on you. You right, dislike yeah. someone who frees probably the most dangerous prisoner in the Republic. Mm -hmm. Good on you. Yeah. Yeah. You're supposed to not like him, right. <laughs> but you're supposed to still be like, I love him still, you know? Yeah. So it's like, it is really interesting because I can have an intention and then I get to see if it plays out that way in the eyes of the readers. You know, it's conversations like this where I can see. And your disillusionment at the garbage barge is fantastic, right? Because you're arguing against it. You're frustrated at him. Yeah. And hopefully that's the point in a way. It is, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Let's do some quick hits. So there's a lot of characters in Lightbringer. Yeah. And there's some new ones and there's some ones that were like... I can't the, kill them off fast enough. I know. <laughs> there's some new ones. <laughs> you do a decent job. Uh, try, try, man, I really try. <laughs> well, you'll probably be some big ones in Red God, I'm assuming. But there's a lot of tertiary characters that are really cool. And I want to just ask you, before we get going, I want to ask you to try to give us one fun fact, maybe about, the, about this character that we don't know, but they're like kind of on the periphery of the book. My first one that I, I really liked in this book was Kyber. Kyber. Kyber is so interesting to me. I think Kyber could be anything or anyone. Like I, I don't, it could be deep cover agent. I have no clue. But is there something like a little nugget of info you can give us on Kyber? It's hard to say what like, what could jeopardize things. Yeah, I know. <laughs> like, That's like, what, I know me, you like, what kind of nuggets do you want? Oh, what, what do you think, Jeremy? What kind of nuggets are we looking for here? I, I was just trying to the, the it's the unfinished journal kind of question, right? It's like in your head, how do you catalog these characters? It's something that may never make the page, I think. Yeah, the whispers are not raised like the rest of the Greys or the Praetorians, which are raised in kennels, like not actually in kennels, but they call them, you know, they refer to them as like dogs and kennels, like hounds of war, et cetera. And when like Roan's talking about his his his, kennel, his yeah. pack and his kennel, all of them went to the Praetorian Guard. Whispers are bred more so to have uh, almost like a um, deeper fidelity to golds, to an individual hmm. gold. They're meant to be, um, what's it, codependent almost. So they're, they're a, a type of bodyguard that has psychological conditioning that is far different. And so they don't have as much loyalty to the legions. They don't have as much loyalty to the, the kennels. To that singular person. Exactly. So they're more so like a stray that's been brought in and only is loyal to the, to, to the master. You know, but the, they're not raised with the rest of the pack. Nice. It, yeah, I, I had this question about her role and, mm -hmm. and, and what she kind of provided. And, and I love that she's just like in every scene apparently, but she's not, you know, she's like always, <laughs> she's like, Kyber, like, boom, like, oh, cool. I, love, up, I love doing that, yeah. <laughs> I almost had I almost had Atlas Aura like uh, nod to Kyber before he left. Oh, interesting. <laughs> like, but then I had to, but I had to have him like, uh, I had to him show that 
well, Kyber then follows him and then he has to lose her later. But I, I thought it would be a cool scene if like we don't even know Kyber's in the scene and he nods to Kyber. <laughs> I, I want to do two more characters. Let's, and then, let's do, let's do it. Yeah, I'll, yeah. Do, I'll be faster. Yeah. No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but there's two more characters that are really interesting and light bringer to me outside of Kyber. Um, Horatia. Like, give us a little nugget on Horatia if you can. Remind me of Horatia's. Uh, Horatia Alvotum. <laughs> okay, Because she, she has this yeah. interesting thing where she really is like, she really is a true reformer. Yes. And it's, and I'm, she's really interesting because she has this, her and Lysander seem really melded on mm-hmm. this idea mm-hmm. and bringing about this idea. And then now I'll say Lysander kind of went, you know, further into the end of the spectrum mm-hmm. from that. Mm-hmm. But I, I'm just curious about, just her character, because she kind of pops up as a you know newer to the book, and she's yeah. really interesting. Horatia is obviously a very kind of bookish, factual person. Mm-hmm. Um, in many ways, she's been like her brother's keeper, always getting Cicero out of trouble, and that was the way in the youth. Like she was always very serious minded as a young girl, but yeah. not in the way of Virginia. She doesn't have that inner charisma that Virginia does, nor does she want to project like that. She's literally like a political wonk, like an engineering wonk. She mm. loves building things. She loves project management. Her favorite thing, administration. Is, pro- her favorite thing is project management, administration. <laughs> and so, you know, she socialized more with the coppers when she was a girl um, because the Votum family had to be one of the most efficient core families simply because they had the, not an effective, uh, they, they had one of the harder planets in the core. And so Votum, they're builders, but they've always been the least of the houses of the conquering. And so uh, her father said, basically, we have less, so we have to be more efficient. Mm. And so she's always had copper friends. She studied at their schools. Um, Interesting. Their finishing schools instead of going to a rhetorical school. Like her as a politician, she's not particularly adept. She's not like a, like imagine like a Barack Obama, um, which is, uh, you know, more of a Virginia, like in terms of rhetoric and uh, popular figure and easy to market and stuff. Um, Virginia's a lot of other things too, so that overly simplifies her. Um, maybe Abraham Lincoln is a better way of saying uh, Virginia. That's probably better. Virginia is meant to be kind of a mix of Churchill and Lincoln. Mm, uh, wow. So some of her speeches uh, are direct, like uh, directly inspired by Churchill. Um, and then um, I think that how would I say uh, Horatia is far more of a like not pol- politically, but like a Mitch McConnell, a guy you barely <laughs> ever see talking. Really? Yeah. But it completely controls the gears of the Senate. I was caught off guard by that. Sorry. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> 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 McConnell, right? But, but he's, he's much more a mechanic. She's much more of a mechanic. And so mm. I think that has to do with her childhood friends and being drawn to the coppers. Okay. And yeah. Okay. So I love that you actually forgot who she was for a second. I, that, I, a lot I, of names. I, no, it's a lot of names. But I... I, I it's adorable at the same time. So... Um, so <laughs> I actually like her yeah, a lot. Yeah. yeah. Um, Last one I want to talk about that's just like, again, little little tidbit here. Athena. Athena. Seems like she's had a, a go of it and she's got, I mean, you could, like a lot of characters, you could probably make a whole story just about her. Yeah. Yeah. So one of Athena's um, uh, friends when she was founding the Daughters of Ares um, was Rihanna from the graphic novels. Really? Yeah. Okay. Cool. So Rihanna. Making that connection. Yeah. Rihanna and the graphic novels. Uh, with Severo's aunt, mm-hmm. and uh, helped her, helped Athena found the Daughters of Ares. Um, I thought that it was not right to bring Rihanna's name into the book series because we haven't mentioned her in the book series yet, but it was meant to be connected in that way. 
Um, initially, I had it be Rihanna, but then I thought this is too much about Dynasty. If it's Rihanna, it should be a red we don't know. Okay. Um, and so instead, Rihanna was like one of her lieutenants and then uh, helped give Fitchner's orders to her when she was founding the Daughters. There's so much speculation that it was Rihanna. Mm-hmm. It was her. Um, mm-hmm. And I think, Jeremy, neither you or I have read the uh, third installment yet. Is that explored, that thought explored? To a degree. Okay. Because we've been so, we've been light bringering like mm-hmm. for the last several months. We mm-hmm. haven't actually got to that one yet. We've read the first two and we love them. Well, and it's Rihanna's experience in the third one that really put the Daughters of Aries on a more pacifist route, hmm. on a route that's not as violent as the Sons of Aries. Um, and the experience she had in book three was influential in shaping Athena. Cool. I'm, I, I'm actually like after this, like I, I'm kind of like letting, I'm allowing myself to go read that. So uh-huh. like starting tomorrow, <laughs> I'm going to, I have it. I'm going to go read it tomorrow. Cool, man. So I I'm like, enjoy it. Yeah. But I wanted to, I, I wanted I think it's to the be, best of the graphic novels. Oh, it, nice. it, the it looks ones. amazing too, yeah, by the way. It's the best looking too yeah. as well. Um, but we've been, we knew we were looking forward to this. Mm-hmm. I, mean, I wanted to stay in that Lightbringer headspace. Oh, but sure, if man. I, if I, cause if I read that, I would be bringing questions to well, you about that. Honestly, this is the first time I talked about Lightbringer in a while. So it's funny to jump back into the water. Cause at first my brain was going very slow and red rising <laughs> stuff. Yeah. I'm like missing yeah. all the quotes. Cause I've been taking a sabbatical, but jumping back Good. in soon. Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, we're going to wrap up in a minute, but okay. I want to do this. I guess I want a fanboy uh, okay. on you if that's okay. And I want a record of it. I don't mind. I want to be vulnerable. Please, please, let's record this. Yes. Um, we got three minutes. We have three, yeah, we have three minutes. Um, I'll speak for Jeremy a little bit, and Jeremy, you can jump in. But this this is it, man. This is this book, this Lightbringer experience, to get to talk about it with friends, get to talk to you about it, get to read it multiple times, and I'm going to read it more. It, it, it was life-changing. Thank you. It was so good, dude. And... Like the Cassius plot was that for me. The Darrow finding faith was that for me. Like there's always this thing about Red Rising that spoke to me in this really primal, like deep way that I, re- I can, and you, you put your stamp on it so hard in this book. And I just, I'm really super appreciative of, of this, for this book and for you. So thank you so much. Well, thank you, man. Yeah. This was a bitch and a half to write. Yeah, what a, and, ju- what a journey. And so I feel like, that it connects with you guys on this level really puts, I mean, halfway through writing it, I scrapped half of it, right? Or more mm-hmm. than half of it. And so it was an act of faith that I was going in the different direction, but the right direction. And so this kind of validation really makes my heart all yummy inside. <laughs> <laughs> Anything to say? No. I think we're gonna wrap it up there. Showered yeah. me with enough praise. Yeah, I think yeah. So. Jeremy's like, nah, you've got enough, dude. And Jeremy's <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> we're talking about your book for two I, hours. I, I want him to be uh, in the right headspace for book seven. Yeah, yeah, I agree with Snooty. So yeah. Yeah. I just appreciate the the work that you put forward. Thank and, you, and uh, thank you very much. You guys helped create a lot of texture to it for me. Thank you. I mean, aspects you bring into this interview, even um, talking about the path as a character, um, focusing on the theme of mercy. And sometimes it takes someone reminding me of these things in order to really bring them to the forefront and remember what I'm working with here and yeah. to make sure it's all given its proper due. So thanks for this and yeah, for being you. so damn thorough. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Okay, until next time, Hail Reaper. Hail Reaper. Hail Libertas. <laughs> Hail Reaper is Jeremy, Mathar, Janelle, and myself, Philip. The podcast is inspired by Pierce Brown's amazing Red Rising saga. All artwork was done by friend of the podcast, Jeff Halsey. To follow Hell Reaper, you can find us on Instagram, YouTube, Etsy, and X 
at Hail Reaper Pod. We want to thank everyone for listening, especially our patrons. If you want to learn how to become one of our patrons and get additional content, check out patreon.com slash Hail Reaper. If you enjoy listening, please leave a five-star review wherever you get your podcast and make sure to tell a friend about us. We love having the opportunity to reach people who are passionate about Red Rising. Until next time, Hail Reaper.